You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon. Very, very much welcome to UVI, to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. I also welcome you on behalf of Transparency International Sweden, whose chairman, Birgitta Nygren, vice chairman, is here with us today. A special uh, thanks also to Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond, the Swedish Foundation for Humanities and the Social Sciences, who has helped us finance a full series of, um, of seminars on corruption. Perhaps some of you were here a few weeks ago when we had a very interesting session on corruption in Russia and the post-Soviet states, which you can listen to on a podcast. We have namely started using podcasts. We've already done a dozen. It's a new thing. And we'd welcome, wel welcome very much your comments on how they work for you. And so this seminar will also be uh, recorded in that way. Do tweet in the usual way at hashtag UISweden or hashtag UIEvent. Now, very much welcome to this particular event on corruption and the global order. Every day now, from every corner of the world, we get new serious news about corruption and how it is upending countries and economies. Yesterday, President Zuma resigned in a dramatic turn of events, and in Israel, Betamin Benjamin Netanyahu is under investigation and may be prosecuted. These are dramatic events, and surely corruption can be dramatized, as it is in the new TV series, Mac Mafia, which if you haven't heard of it, please find it. It's an excellent way to show how even people who are not intent on being corrupt can be ensnared in corruption. And in fact, corruption in its, in its many forms even in the less invidious ones that are not outright illegal, seem to define what has gone wrong with an international order we thought that we could build on laws, norms, and values. We're privileged today to have with us three very knowledgeable experts on the subject. And I will first want to introduce Daniel Kaufman. Danny, if you'd please join me here at the podium, I'll introduce the two other speakers um, when they come. But you have been asked to provide us with a keynote on um, governance and corruption at a crossroad, worldwide evidence and reflections for policy and leadership. I got to know you, Danny, uh, when we were both at the World Bank, and we were both participating in what should be called a struggle to rip up the C word. I don't know if you want to tell that story, but it was a real uh, struggle to get through the board, President Wolfenson's speech, to speak actually the word corruption. That was eight, 98 or 99, something like this. It was a big step for the bank's uh, governance and operations at the time. Extraordinary when you think of it. Danny, you're now president and CEO for the Natural Resource Governance Institute, but you're also a member of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. These are two huge NGO initiatives that have an enormous, had an enormous impact 
on how the world sees and uh, looks at corruption. You have also been uh, on the, or maybe are still, on the OECD's advisory board and the Inter-American um, Development Bank's advisory board on similar subjects. Over all these years, you have used evidence. That's what you developed when you were director at the World Bank Institute and developed the thinking, the evidence of, around this, asking more and more difficult questions. And that is what you will speak to us today about. Very much welcome, Daniel. Thank you, uh, Matt. Thank you for <coughs> also all, all of you in the Institute. Uh, Transparency International, I understand, are partners with you in, <coughs> in this series with corruption and world order. And on the way here, I was reflecting, well, does that mean that my marching orders is to talk very long if I talk about corruption, or very, very short now, which is about world order, which order? Um, in, in an era where that order is being, being challenged. But I guess that's the nature of why this series may be, may be important to discuss the very tough challenges, but as well as opportunities we face here today. Thanks for all of, all of you of being here uh, today. And without further ado, because as Matt said, <clears throat> what uh, has driven so much of our work, and I say our because Throughout my, my career, whenever we try to make a difference, it has always been um, through <coughs> partnerships, through co-authorships, through collaboration with, with others. It's not through a, through a single individual. Um, so a lot of the work that I'll be presenting is, in fact, the outcome of that. And a deep belief that has driven my work, which I believe it's so important nowadays is, as you said, evidence-based. In other words, challenging this whole alternative facts world that seems to have gained in prominence in certain parts of the world nowadays. So I'll start with an exercise which, whose inspiration comes from research in the 1950s. We're talking almost 70 years ago by <coughs> insurance companies in the UK who became very concerned about what we call in economics moral hazard. People having insurance policies <coughs> and not basically uh, telling the truth regarding when something was lost and having false claims. So how do you uh, separate the false claim from the actual claims? We call it moral hazard. Um, and we adapted that for courses that we would do, trainings, but also engagement with, with high officials of many countries on, on anti-corruption, when we would do <coughs> these gatherings for a whole week towards an anti-corruption program when I was at the World Bank Institute, and then a bit afterwards when I was at Brookings, we did that. We would start with this type of question through <coughs> technology where one can vote anonymously with a, a remote. Unfortunately, we couldn't organize this today, otherwise I would do it. So we'll pretend we're doing it, but very quickly. I know how hard everybody works, and Sweden is famous for that. I know very well, <coughs> not as well as you do, the history of Sweden. It's not that long ago that Sweden was a very poor country, and it's a major, I, I use it as a major success in development. How you, the 
the notion that we use sometimes in American, yes, you can. Uh, yes, we can. <coughs> and in my own country, which we have done something similar more recently, which is Chile, uh, the notion, notion that things are, uh, are possible. How hard everybody works. So you're, you're at work very late at night. Last one to leave, you go to the garage, to, to your bicycle or motorcycle or car. As you approach the car, which is unattended in the garage, you see an envelope on the floor. And you, so you pick it up. It has 20 bills of 100 euros each. What's the first reaction? What do you do with that envelope? There's no possibility anybody would, <coughs> would know anything. There's no camera, no monitor, no reporting. It's an op open uh, park parking lot. Um, there are three options. The first one is to immediately go back to the building, look for the guard, you tell uh, what happened, you return it, you get a receipt that, that was happened, and the next day you try to inquire whether the, the due owner was, was found. The other extreme is to say, <clears throat> fortunately, when my kid was 11, we'll come back from school with toys. You say, where did you get that toy? They call it finders keepers. I found it. So it's, it's mine. Um, or to justify it, in any case, the due owner will not be found. I can use it for, the, for my own schooling or the schooling of, of my kids. And you, you just quietly take it. That's the other extreme. It's a middle option, which we call it sitting on the fence. You say, I'm going to think about it, talk about it with my pillow or my better half tonight, and I'll sit on the fence and decide tomorrow morning, what do I do really with this envelope? It stays at home or I bring it back? So those are the three choices. You yourself already probably had immediately, instinctively, you know what you would have done it, so you have <coughs> voted in, in your head. Here, I'm giving the results of about 500 different anonymous respondents in many of these <coughs> programs that we, uh, we did. Um, so, one-third voted that they would return it right away. Very interestingly, almost one-fifth admit that they would just take it. But even more interesting, about half sit on the fence. And let's see, let me think about it. And Then the question is asked again, but with a very small adjustment. And the adjustment is as follows. In this day and age, so everything is the same, but in this day and age, there's always a probability, and let's say that possibility is just small, but 20%, that there is a <coughs> closed-circuit camera. So there is a possibility of some observation, some disclosure of information that may be shared, whether with a guard or somebody may look at the camera later. And that garage is enclosed, although there's nobody there, you, you're not sure. There is that possibility, a small possibility. And it's the same question again. How would one react? Whoops. So <laughs> with that small change, already three quarters become very green and say immediately you return it. And basically the red disappears and a small minority rem remains yellow or undecided. One of the reasons <coughs> we, we would do that, and that was already outcomes from research that was before, but in a very simple way, and from the respondents themselves. These were 
people, whether students or high-level officials or leaders of NGOs, they were from Africa, Latin America, US, in Europe. And whether we would do that program and the participants were from one region or another, it didn't make a difference. The responses were very similar. The real difference <coughs> was between the first question and the second question. The moment incentives differ, there is disclosure or there isn't the possibility of this monitoring and disclosure. That's when behavior uh, changes. So it's already <coughs> for the message to begin be being internalized that this, this is not culturally or historically determined it's because I come from such and such a country or from, I have a particular set of genes that we're talking about better governance, transparency, or corruption. So it's already to, to motivate that discussion and motivate the evidence-based, uh, fact-driven that, that we always try to promote. So without further ado now, let me go through the main issues that I like to cover <coughs> during this, this presentation. So the power of data and diagnostic tools. So the power of, of empirics, which as you already see, it's very important for us. Governance as opposed to what was the popular notion about 20 years ago when we started the work as Matt was elaborating, governance, yes, it can be measured and it matters and we will discuss a few of those aspects. I look very much forward to our commentators' eminent discussions. We will be presented shortly because I won't discuss all the areas where it matters, where their expertise is much more vast than mine. Corruption, I'll present it as an important symptom of institutional weakness in most, most cases, or governance a failure, rather than being the fundamental cause of it all, which will lead to, to give a sense of the end of, of the picture here. That one doesn't fight corruption by merely, merely fighting corruption. Russia is in about the 25th campaign on anti-corruption, just having another campaign, another set of a decrease or another anti-corruption commission is not the type of thing that has worked in this field, but it's much harder work look, looking at the institutions, at the systems in a, in, in a much more comprehensive fashion. And that's why one, even if one is interested in corruption, one has to look at the whole governance system. A, a game changer what has happened in the past <coughs> few decades in this, in this field, which we have studied in depth, is a whole challenge of what we call legal corruption and capture of the state for motivated by the, the transition in, this, from the, in the Soviet Union to the post-Soviet and the rise of the oligarchs. I'll cover that briefly. Uh, and then as a, a case study of the importance of drilling down and not staying at only at the global level or even at the national level. It's so important to make progress here, to understand, do diagnostics at the sectoral level. And a key area of focus, which is what drives us in, in the organization now that I, that I now lead, is the corruption and governance vulnerabilities in resource-rich countries, in extractive, both extractive sector and in countries which are very resource-rich. Sweden is not very resource-rich. Sweden cares enormously, however, <coughs> about developing countries and in particular fragile states and so on. Fragility is total 
intimately linked to resource dependency, and we will look at that, and then <coughs> we'll draw a few implications. Please bear with me. I'll, I won't do full justice to everything. It's more in breath that I'll try to cover different, these different topics, so sometimes I'll go quite fast through some of the materials. For the sake of transparency, everything will be then uploaded, even slides I will not show or go very quickly and all the background material. But quickly, what, in terms of governance, what are we talking about when we talk about governance? So let me just suggest a simple framework, which is how we started towards uh, this measurement <coughs> and construction of governance indicators, which we started 20 years ago when I was at the World Bank with my co-author, then Art Cray. We still continue that until today. Now, in my, my hat is different, but it's exactly the same methodology approach. So we, we have two decades of data on that. And we started with a definition, which we didn't just totally invent ourselves. From the literature, we drew a synthesis and we see governance as a set of traditions and institutions by which authority in a country is exercised. Now, unbundling that is what matters. Let's get specific. So specifics of, of that means that we need to look, when we talk about governance, at at least three key clusters of governance. The political cluster, or political dimension of governance, the economic dimension of governance, and the institutional or institutional respect dimension of governance. The, the political dimension is the process by which those in authority are selected, are monitored, are replaced. And that, that each one of these dimensions, we try to capture, which we have done, by two measurement indicators. The first being voice and democratic accountability, the extent to which a country would have <coughs> freedoms of association, <coughs> freedom of expression, including press, press freedom, and democratic process of selecting leaders, monitoring them, and so on. And the second political <coughs> second indicator for the political dimension would be the extent to which the country enjoys or doesn't political stability and absence of major violence and terrorism. The more economic dimension of governance refers to the capacity of government to formulate and implement policies and provide public service to its citizens. Again, two key uh, indicators to capture that dimension. One is the, ex the effectiveness of the government agencies, of the government, of the bureaucracy, and the other is the quality of the regulatory framework. These are the two key functions of of government, basically, to provide public services and the regulatory aspects, particularly <coughs> that would govern the functioning of the private sector and related system. And third, last but not least, the crucial institutional respect dimension, which is the respect of citizens and state for institutions that govern interactions among them. And again, two indicators that were constructed to capture that dimension. One is the quality of the application, implementation of rule of law, not just what's in the books, which sometimes is highly divorced from what happens in reality. And second, for the sixth indicator out of all, all these dimensions, control of corruption. Now, one of the reasons, and thanks for bearing with me, 
that I present this whole framework and the sex indicator is that even if we are interested, ultimately, very focused on the issue of control of corruption, I very much appreciate the enormous and wonderful efforts of Transparency International over a very long time which, with whom we have collaborated, even if that's the focus, one <coughs> cannot escape looking at the other dimensions of governance because, as I said earlier, um, those are critical, fundamental aspects that uh, uh, drive, uh, drive, drive corruption. Um, and second, the other reason it's important to, to unbundle these is because too often in popular notions, in language, it's conflated as if governance and corruption are one and the same. There are distinct issues. Governance is much more broadly and encompasses other issues too. Actually, when I go to law school, sometimes governance and rule of law is conflating as it's the same. No, rule of law, control of corruption are dimensions with, within it. Uh, I will not spend time, and I will ask you to trust me, an enormous amount of work went statistically and methodologically to put this framework to, together. <clears throat> um, as I said, it's already 20 years from 96, covers the whole world, 200 countries, over 30 different sor data sources. We don't create any data sources. We compile it from around the world as a way of saying, trust me, here is the list, not all, but most of the, the sources that come from service of firms, service of individuals, commercial risk rating agencies, expert assessment from NGOs, think tanks, from governments, multilaterals, and they are based in all kinds of regions, countries in the world, and that helps enormously that there are no particular bias of one or, uh, organization. Still, one has to be mind mindful. Each one of these sources has its issues. There's always a margin of error in this type of measurement. There's an element of subjectivity and so on. We take all this into account and the particular methodology <coughs> that we have allows us to be transparent and precise about the extent of imprecision in the data. So here, just to get quickly to the data and some of the insights, there's no space for 200 plus countries, so just selected for to show some about 60, 60 of, of them. The height of each column is the score of the country. But you also see the thin black line atop each one of the columns. That's a margin of error, which the data itself, thanks to the methodology we use, that uh, allow us to be able to estimate. The bad news, quote unquote bad news, but we are very transparent and precise about that, is that nobody should be pretending to run the horse races and say, I beat my neighbor by a nose. That's in statistics, we call it a statistical tie. So don't even look how you compare with Norway because you are in the same category if you take into account of the, of the margin of error. In fact, the Scandinavian countries are all in the dark green area. The good news in this is these margins of error because we collect so much information from so many are not fatally large and does allow to do analysis, inferences, and comparisons. And that's why the color coding, the dark green countries 
are in a different category than the lighter green, and even more so than the yellows, than the orange, the light red, and the dark red, which are in governance crisis, and in some cases, a quasi-failed failed state. So, in, in that context, uh, one, one can make uh, inferences. So, in the best category, obviously, the Scandinavian countries as they are, including New Zealand and others, then comes others, where my country, Chile, is United States. It's not in the top category, but together with where we are and not necessarily going in the right direction and so on. Another way of looking at it is through <coughs> a global world map, a world map of, of governance. And this is for the first dimension, which is voice and accountability before what I showed earlier was for control or corruption, this is voice and democratic accountability. Uh, if it looks a little bit to you like a copy and paste from the web, it is. And it's all transparent, transparently there. One sees this significant differences around the world. Again, note that Canada is dark green and the neighbor just to the south is not in that top category at this stage and in other regions. Um, as we'll see in a, in a second, there's a lot of uh, variation too. This is political stability, absent violence, government effectiveness, rule of law. I'm not showing all of them, but just to quickly give, give a sense of the data. One can zoom in. So this is my region. I live in the U.S. and I'm a Chilean national. One sees the whole spectrum. This goes to show that once one gets into evidence-based, some of the generalizations that one sees in long text may not apply. One tends to say Latin America is this or is that, Africa is this or that, when in fact there's such enormous variation. We have the whole spe spectrum between green and you see the red and you know where they are and a lot in, in between. Similarly, if we zoom to Europe, depending where in Europe and how far uh, you are in Europe, you have the whole spectrum. And it's not just going from west to east, it's going from north to south within Europe. Enormous differences uh, too, and the trend lines also vary significantly. The same applies in other indicators, voice and accountability, and so on. One can then drill down, let's come from the 30,000 feet, which is the world, to, or, or 100,000 feet, um, to a country, and again, this is copy and paste from the web. In, you choose a country that you're very interested, you're working on, and you choose uh, indicators and what time periods you want to do, just for the sake <coughs> of showing a few. I chose over these 20, 22 decades, the, the first period, 96, the intermediate, 2006, and then 2016. We see the yes, we can. Some countries, like Colombia, through enormous efforts and enormous challenges, and they still much homework ahead. We see the progress, because the, <coughs> the top is always the earliest years. So, yeah. Almost as an unfortunate mirror image is the neighbor country, Venezuela, going exactly the opposite direction. That much but to any theory that it's all the, the Spanish colonialism, the, the cultural antecedents, sharing so much of the same. And there are many other neighboring countries, including, for, 
or Chile and so on, one can make the same comparisons and countries that have gone in completely different directions. Of course, the Koreas are one of the most potent examples, showing that leadership, incentives, governance, every period, and very hard work matters enormously. Other countries that are making progress, another example is Indonesia, different part of the world. I know Tanzania, how important the relationship has been with, with Sweden, mixed some progress, some areas going, going back in governance. Um, there's nothing that says that all progress, all going backwards into the same dimensions. As we know, in particular in East Asia, it can, it can go in different directions for different dimensions, particularly voice and accountability and others in some cases. Ukraine is another case in point. Um, enormous challenges still, but overall there have been some areas with, uh, with good progress. Well, of, of course, major backward in the blue, the second on, on the stability issue due to the conflict with, uh, with Russia. Um, but on others, Russia, much more dire picture, as we see, going in the, in the wrong direction. And of course, I cannot help with my hat and showing my bias, showing Chile, but just as a case that, yes, even for an emerging economy, one can have rather high standards. We do have our challenges, and recently we had our corruption uh, challenges. We can discuss that later, but they are being addressed. Okay, you may say, so far so good. This is kind of interesting. But does it matter? The answer is unambiguously yes and enormously. And I'll just put it in one, one graph that doesn't do justice to the enormity of research. We have done some with Cray and other researchers have, have done it. In sum, we find with all the data that are collected, we did this about a decade ago, it still applies, that the country that improves <coughs> It's governance, rule of law, control and corruption. In a realistic way, not, not going from Equatorial Guinea to Norway or to Sweden, uh, but uh, one-fifth of that difference between the best and the, the, the worst standards in the world, just one-fifth, which is totally realistic. It's the type of thing that Chile and Colombia have done in a, a generation. So that's one standard deviation, it's one-fifth. That's associated with an in, increase by three times, threefold in per capita income in the long term, from $10,000 per capita per year to $30,000, or from three to, uh, uh, to nine. Similar improvements in education and reduction in infant mortality, significant improvement in investment, a more robust democracy, uh, and so on. And there are all kinds of links also with security, where <coughs> My colleagues, which will be coming later, know much, much more about that. So there is enormous evidence that it does matter. Now, just not to think, given the August setting we're here in Stockholm, that, okay, this is interesting, but this applies to development, to developing countries. We are already rich, OECD, industrialized. If one looks only at the industrialized world, countries in OECD above it uh, with a high income level. These things, the governance and control of corruption matters enormously. This is a research I did around the time of the 
of the Greece financial crisis, showing the enormous difference in macroeconomic stability measured by fiscal deficits that are caused by higher levels of corruption. It, it, on average, an eight percentage point of GDP higher fiscal deficit in a country with much more corruption like Greece versus a country with more average levels. And that's what this relationship does show. This relationship, including the, the three-time difference, the three-fold difference I mentioned earlier, those are causal. It goes from improved governance and controlling corruption to this development impact to higher income to less budget deficit and not the other way around. We, uh, we uh, corrected for, for all that. It's not simply a correlation, which I call it an art. It's a causality direction, which is more science. Similar impact, we find it with increased competitiveness according to measured by the World Economic Forum Competitive Index. Countries that are corrupt have, have uh, much more. Let's move now to, to Another skeptic rightly so said, okay, this is interesting too, your measurement, and they matter, but what can you do about it? Yeah. Um, well, quite a bit, but it's hard work because one of the key determinants of corruption, which has become more prominent lately, and we call it on the demand side of, of corruption, is the extent, another key governance indicator, is the extent to which the country has standards of voice and democratic accountability. That's what we talked about before. Freedom of association, expression, and, 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 and so on is extremely important to create that. Essentially, not just relying on the supply side, which is the set of government auditing institutions and other such supreme institutions from the government, but relying on the millions of auditors, which is our citizens themselves, we will make government accountable. Increasingly, we have enormous amount of data showing that that's, that's important. This is another way of showing it with other indicators. The extent to which press freedom matters for fighting corruption, the extent to which transparency, transparency uh, at the sector level, including in, in resources, which we'll discuss in a second, but also more broadly. Here's the problem, however. Good to say that, and this is an interesting finding, and it, one could say it's very encouraging that since 1990, there's been a major increase in the number of formal democracies around the world. In fact, the lines are crossed between the majority of countries being a democracy versus a uh, in the past when it wasn't. And that happened, in fact, about 26, 27 years uh, ago. Um, but that's the formal part. So many more countries are having elections and being formal in the, that formal sense. But many of these democracies are managed. And increasingly, civic space, civil society, and accountability is being constrained on that. We got, so then we, we go to more specific indicators of freedom of the press, and we look at the past 15 years, <clears throat> and we don't see progress. To the contrary, if anything, there have been some step uh, uh, backwards. So there, have been, there has been 
in a nonlinear change from that progression that we had earlier on. And that gets me to the politics bit. And I'm an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to be a political scientist. But one of the things that we tried to contribute, and there with another co-author, who is a brilliant political scientist, Joel Hellman, we embarked on a project to try to measure what was also considered unmeasurable. It's a form of grand corruption, which we labeled as state capture or capture of the state. And that was <clears throat> at the time that the new so post-Soviet states were created. And we observed that in some of, some of them, uh, the new oligarchs were essentially capturing <clears throat> the rules, the laws, the policies, <clears throat> um, the decrees of, of, the, of the state, while in others, there was some transition to, to a market economy. And we tried to measure that with, with service that had been taking place. That was at the time of the World Bank. And here we see the difference. And I'm not going to go through the details, but the difference of a very high level of capture in terms of the acquisition by these oligarchs of influence in central bank decrees, parliamentary legis legislation in countries like Russia and Azerbaijan in contracts at the time with countries like in the Baltics. And at the time in Hungary, where unfortunately the direction has been re reversed. This is in, in 2000. We did the analysis, and this was associated with significant cost for private sector development and growth in those countries which had high capture. We, on average, could grow only at half the rate of countries that were not subject to high capture. So it was a mixed picture. It's not that all the countries in transition suffered from that same level of, uh, of, of capture. Now, with, I expanded this with another data set to try to look at the rest of the world and looking at different ways of influencing these laws and regulations, as well as continuing to measure more traditional forms of corruption, like corporate bribery. And on the right-hand side of this graph, we, uh, we see um, <clears throat> what was happening on corporate bribery, where the, the Scandinavian Nordic countries rated very low, low levels of bribery. Um, and higher in the G7, <laughs> East Asian Tigers, United States, not so high, but higher than here. But the real action was taking place on that corporate legal corruption the extent to which the very, very powerful firms, industry, financial sector, were able to unduly influence the rules of the game. Again, the policy, the laws, the regulation of that. And particularly high was the United States, as, as we see there. We're talking 2004, 2005. I got a lot of criticism saying that something was wrong with the data. By 2008 and the financial crisis, nobody was criticizing that uh, much anymore. But it's an important reminder that there's a form, a new form of, of corruption, which is far uh, removed from the typical administration. I'm, I'm painfully aware that um, I. I've been very keen in my, my career on, on issues of education, health, and particularly the links with governance. But if I was uh, talking on, the, on those topics, they are uh, 
they're much less politically sensitive. So um, this is a politically sensitive issue. So who, who knows what, what bugs can come in into this? Um, let me have now a word, as I promised, before getting to the concluding remarks, so I'm very keen to get to, to my colleagues, the commentators, and to the discussion on the a case study by looking at a very important set of countries and sector, which is resource-rich countries and, a, and the extractive se sector. In particular, in our organization, we focus on governance and anti-corruption in oil, gas, and, and, and mining. And it's just so important, we came down from 100,000 feet to 30 to 5, and to look at, at the firms, what they do, to look at, and that's why the capture issue is very important, uh, to look what's happening at the national level, at the subnational level, but also for each sector, uh, to have with the proper diagnostic and evidence tools. This is just to show the magnitude of the challenge for this set of, of, of countries, and that's where uh, why fragility is at, at the core here. If the, a country has not been resource rich, on average has had a much higher level of, um, of governance, um, and we see that both in 2000 and 2016, and if anything, a slight improvement over the period, both the level and the direction of travel has been exactly the opposite for resource-rich uh, countries. So we say in the United States, Houston, we have a problem. And that's why it's so important to, to, to have that focus. If that picture doesn't change in terms of the quality of governance, which is so different for resource-rich countries, from having started as, as a Millennium Development Goal start in 1990, only 20% of the poor lived where in resource-rich countries. The picture is totally changing, and if this doesn't change by 2030, half of the poor is going to be in resource-rich countries. So not to think that we're talking about a very niche specific issues. That's, again, at the core of fragility. And that's what drives our work, and we have a specialized, again, diagnostic type of a index that we have put together, in, and it's all on the web, so I'm not going to do justice for countries that are resource dependent. And again, a very varied picture. Uh, the good news is that there is a set of countries <coughs> um, that about 20% of them that are doing okay, satisfactory or, or good. The dark green, only four. I'm proud Chile is one of them. Um, <coughs> and then the lighter, lighter green. But the other 80% is below satisfactory. A weak, poor, <coughs> or even failing performance. And that's a, an ex extremely uh, concerning issue as to the magnitude of the challenge. Um, it's worth pointing out that this is not all related to, <coughs> to how rich the country is. Countries in the Gulf, in terms of governance, transparency, and accountability, natural resources, are not doing well, extremely rich, very non-transparent, many of, of those issues. Well, in Latin America, as we see here, there are a number of countries, emerging economies, that are showing, yes, again, it can be, uh, can be done. Colombia, as I mentioned, is a good case, Chile, and, and, and others. 
So it's not a prerequisite to be totally advanced, industrialized, to be able to do well even on this governance dimension. This is a way of saying, trust us, there's an enormous amount of very detailed work. Anybody who wants to work on a country and look at the country and how it's doing in different dimensions on, on, on extractive, because just looking at the aggregate doesn't tell the real picture for policymakers. They want to know much more. So here, Colombia, in every type of area about <clears throat> and the upstream, what to do about it, or midstream for revenue management, or for state enterprises, and so on. Again, many greens, but also some areas one can identify challenges. Tanzania, another picture, all of that is available in the web. Again, we go back to the basics, though. Countries that do restrict enormously civic space and do not allow civil society to have voice and democratic accountability do poorly, even on the technical aspects of managing and governing the, the extractors. So we are talking about basic. State-owned enterprises are a big challenge area, but again, there are countries, India, Colombia, uh, Chile, and so on, that are showing that it can be done, and a state-owned enterprise can be managed well in this area. A lot of this diagnostic work we're doing now also about corruption in the whole value chain in extractive, uh, where there are very different mani manifestations of corruption. One has to drill down. It's not just enough to talk about corruption. Is it about subcontracting, about license allocation, commodity sales? or the revenues disappear. Totally different manifestation. One has to get into, into the, the specifics. Get then into the recommendations. First, let me start with the sectoral, and then I'll end with the more general ones. For, from this work at the sectoral level, one key recommendation, and I didn't show all the results for the sake of not taking more of the time, but it's all uh, online is what we call the major challenge of the implementation gap. So nowadays, thanks to many international efforts and national efforts and some leaders, policies and new institutional initiatives, regulations which are better, are being adopted. Parliaments are approving it. It doesn't mean that they're getting implemented. There's a major implementation gap in many countries. Particularly, we find in countries that are challenged by corruption. So focus more on implementation and not just in having a law on a regulation adopted. The open government movement and towards more transparency has to continue uh, apace. The issue of state-owned enterprises is a major challenge where for some time we, the world in general and the development community did not pay sufficient attention as opposed to some decades ago. The protection of civic space, we mentioned that, and combating corruption, absolutely uh, cru crucial. Global norms and institutions and using data is key. Global norms, and I, I assume will be discussed uh, uh, now, this is whole issue about how to address the challenge of illicit financial flow, anti-money laundering. But there are also these very important initiatives, and as Matt mentioned, I'm in, involved in the board of the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, where with 51 implementing countries already, well over a trillion dollars in, in payments. In concluding, and more generally, to end my remarks, First, to go back to the beginning, the power of data. 
the importance nowadays to resist that movement of alternative facts. And it's so important to go to the next level and measuring, monitoring, diagnosing governance corruption at all levels, worldwide, <laughs> national, subnational, and sector. Corruption not being a deterministic historical driver that uh, one cannot do anything about it. Uh, one basically can address and with leadership through governance uh, approach which is comprehensive. Anti-corruption matters enormously for development results, for competitiveness and other factors. The demand side of governance is crucial, including voice and democratic accountability, transparency, open data. The issue of state capture and undue influence, it's a, a key new phenomenon. I discussed it in the post-Soviet era. I mentioned <clears throat> for other countries, including the United States, is a real uh, threat nowadays in that context. Governance in extractives as a sectoral challenge is also a development challenge related to fragility. And last but not least, ending with the importance of international uh, leadership. It's a challenge nowadays because of the abdication of leadership in governance, anti-corruption, and transparency, including an extractive by the United States, who has left that for the time being. It hopefully, probably would be temporary, but that's the case. That has left a vacuum, but also it's a major opportunity for others to seize <laughs> some uh, leadership, which has been, been taking up, and some in the international sphere. In EITI, we have seen opportunities, and we have adopted new initiatives which would not have been possible uh, previously, thanks to, to that, at OECD level, including OECD and Hanke Gure, some of the leaders are doing that. It's a real also opportunity for more leadership from the Scandinavian countries, Germany, and others in this space that basically now has been left open because of the developments in the United States and the UK being totally focused on some other issues, as we all know. Thank you. Well, thank you, Danny, for that forceful, comprehensive um, picture you're over there, uh, of where evidence today leads us in thinking about governance. How important to be aware of this now that there are new development narratives coming in that we thought would not carry weight, that you could improve economic growth and improve general well-being by uh, not caring about governance. Never did I think that we need this evidence to actually fight a growing counter-narrative to what we've learned, but that is necessary. Well, it's uh, now time to invite our two commentators, please. Uh, James Lynch and Johan Engvall join the podium. Uh, James, uh, you've been uh, newly appointed as Deputy Program Director at Transparency International, where you lead the, the Defense and Security Program. You've spent before that seven years in Amnesty International with various responsibilities on arms control and with the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, to those who might think that you are just an NGO activist, you actually come from the British Civil Service where you have a, been a diplomat for a long time. 
Johan Engvall, you uh, have been here at us a long time with the, uh, with the UI, but you've moved over to FUI, the Swedish uh, Defense Research Agency. You are a long-time champion of these uh, perspectives, and in fact, it was a conversation that we had that led you to approach Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond so that we could get these series going. I'm really happy to have you here. We agreed that James goes first, and perhaps you would expand this base that Daniel has laid uh, into the area of security and whether, well, how it should worry us. Please, James. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. And um, I'm really pleased to be here you know, on behalf of, of Transparency International and, and to be part of this great partnership with the, um, the Institute. Um, and thank you, Daniel, for your brilliant presentation. Um, yeah, I'm going to try and, and build a little bit just on, on one angle, which is your does it matter question, um, and with specific relation to the issue of security. So I want to talk about sort of two, um, two crucial and sort of related dimensions of corruption and the global order, the link between corruption and security, and then the significance of corruption in the defense sector. Um, and, I, and I think that the, the sort of central assumption for those working on good governance that I, I want to sort of highlight is that corruption is a major driver of insecurity. Um, there's research by the Institute of Economics and Peace, which has found that once countries reach a certain level of corruption under the sort of the corruption perception indicator that TI puts together, um, there's a point at which a small increase is associated with a large increase in, in forms of insecurity, political terror, instability, crime rates, demonstrations, organized conflicts, um, access to small arms and light weapons. Um, now, obviously, that's a, that's a correlation. It's not necessarily a causation. Um, not every case of insecurity is going to be driven by corruption. Um, but I, I think we, you know, uh, uh, Transparency, Defense and Security, where I work, we are arguing that it's a, it's a very significant underlying cause in many cases. So I want to highlight sort of five five dimensions of that relationship between corruption and, and insecurity drawn from our work. Um, the first one is, is, is the role that corruption plays in, in stifling development and, and the way in which that stokes resentment. Um, Daniel sort of set out very clearly um, how corruption makes countries poorer on average, it creates inequalities, it creates unstable society. So by diverting funds from public services, stymieing economic growth, that becomes a defining feature of people's experiences and interactions with their governments. Um, once it's a certain level, it becomes more than an institutional weakness and something that's a lack of capacity. It's actually, it's a political arrangement that is allowing elites to steal wealth. That diminishes trust in the state and, and as I say, drives resentment. There was a study by the world, for the World Bank recently looking at the drivers of, of the so-called Arab Spring. Um, that pinpointed declining standards of living, the deteriorating quality of public services, and the dissatisfaction with the fact that in order to get ahead in society, you had to have wasta, so connections with, with powerful political elites. Um, so there was a sort of, you know, the study actually uses the phrase broken social contract, and I think, you know, it was so broken um, that in fact, the way that governments responded to, to, to resentment and dissatisfaction was, they were unable to, to negotiate what were broadly legitimate grievances. Um, leading to extremely high levels of insecurity and, and even conflict. In the case of Egypt, the dominant role of the military in the economy has, you know, running businesses from the Suez Canal to hotels, um, 
it stifles competition and it relies on strong patronage networks. So while militaries like the Egyptian military have sometimes enjoyed popular support, by playing that role, they are actually creating the structures that, 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 create, that, that, that drive this resentment. So they're supposed to provide security. They're, in fact, driving insecurity. And whilst you know, civil society groups and opposition groups may raise those grievances and may, 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 may convey their resentment in legitimate ways, there are others who... The corruption also fuels the narrative of those who wish to see the state fail entirely. This is my second point, that corruption actually enables extremism, extremism and terrorism. So Transparency last year carried out research into ISIS messaging. Um, and we found that while, of course, you know, ISIS used a lot of religious narratives um, uh, to promote its worldview and recruit new followers, actually corruption played a very large part in, in the kind of social media messaging that came out. Um, and it particularly it focused, you know, not uh, grand corruption at the state level in Iraq, right down to the sort of day-to-day -day interactions that people would have with Iraqi security forces, um, you know, on the ground. And, and I think the power of that narrative in that context was that it resonated. It was, it, it was in, in, in its very narrow way, it was authentic. Now, of course, the alternative that they were presenting was 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 also false. Was falsified. Was not authentic. But I think that that that's the danger for a state. You know, the DRC in the DRC, the armed forces were so predatory um, that that they have eroded in some parts of the country any sense of trust uh, with the population, and that's directly benefiting rebel groups um, that they are designed to defeat. Um, so if you if you are a state that is facing an existential threat from rebels or insurgents, good governance is not a sort of nice to have or a luxury. It's it's actually critical to the, the integrity of the state in in its entirety. Um, and and I think then linked to that is the fact that corruption impedes responses um, to insecurity. So in the defence sector, particularly, um, corruption. It, it, because of the size of the defense budget, particularly in corruption-prone states, I mean, I think that the defense spend per, as, a, as a proportion of GDP uh, raises, rises up to 7% in certain countries, in uh, Mauritania, for example. Um, and because the defense sector is so opaque, um, because it's, which is often justified on, sort of on national security grounds, um, corruption in the defense sector is something that we argue should be a major priority. Um, when the defense sector is prioritizing the generation of wealth, it's almost certain to degrade the state's ability to actually defend itself. Um, in Iraq, corruption was at the root of one of the worst military defeats of the 21st century. 25,000 soldiers uh, equipped with tanks and artillery dispersed by around 1,300 ISIS fighters in Mosul. Um, there was ghost soldiers, diverted equipment. The leadership structure was based on, on bribery. Um, there was a fractured and, 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 and ineffective chain of a command. Um, and uh, what this brought about was sort of catastrophic, catastrophic failure of the security forces. The same year in Ukraine, in 2014, um, as conflict broke, broke out in the eastern region of the country, the scale of procurement um, corruption was, was sort of brutally exposed. There were soldiers who were having to pay $2,000 each with their own money to get boots, uniform, and body armor. There were reports, um, credible reports, that there were helmets that people were issued with that had nails, that, that, that they were put, to, put together with nails driven through the top um, that were you to be hit would drive the nail into your head. 
Um, this is the sort of thing that happens when procurement is done on the basis of what works for the for the people procuring, um, rather than the actual needs of the um, you know of, of the soldiers themselves. Um, and only this week, actually, that the head of the state-owned defence um, conglomerate in the Ukraine was sort of forced to step down after a whole set of corruption scandals. So the the fourth thing I want to highlight is is the way in which. Corruption has the potential to, and, and, and poor defence governance more broadly, has the potential to fuel arms races and global insecurity. Um, it, it's, it's trust between states as well as between the citizen and the state. Global defence spending is rising um, by around 15% over the last decade. And China and Russia have, have increased their spending by more than 100% each in the last decade. Um, in the Middle East, around 15% of state spending on average is on defence. And it's not just the size of the defence budgets that's important here, um, it's also the fact that global military expenditure is rising most rapidly exactly where standards of governance are weakest. Um, it means that vast proportions of public spending are, are spent completely opaquely. We think that around a third of global defence spending is, is by countries with effectively zero meaningful budget transparency. Um, and what does that mean? It means a lot of things, but it's one, one of the impacts is, is on security and between states. Excessive secrecy over states' military capabilities and intent has obvious implications for fueling interstate competition um, in regions like the Gulf, South and Southeast Asia. Even where there may be no malintent, um, you can have sudden unexplained purchases that create a perception of an aggressive armament policy even if actually the reason people are, are taking decisions is for kickbacks or offset deals. Um, and the final thing I want to highlight, and, and, and I think Daniel sort of flagged on this, um, was the role that corruption plays in weakening sovereignty. Um, authoritarian models of governance are sort of increasingly challenging democratic norms. Um, and alongside disinformation and cyber warfare, um, corruption can be used consciously and intentionally as a tool of statecraft rather than simply as, as, a, as a way of extracting sort of gain for private, private wealth uh, creation. Um, elites in one country can use corrupt practices to hold political classes in other countries hostage and exert illegitimate influence. So the kind, this kind of corruption is not aimed at private, private financial benefit, it aims at political influence. Um, so Russia, for example, has sought to influence political outcomes it's partnered and partially bought out large companies that make significant donations to political parties. It's supported and, and, and sort of funneled rewards to individuals in other states with significant political influence. In Serbia and Bulgaria, Russian companies financed and supported people who would be supportive of their priorities. And they're often using shell companies based in the West. Um, the former president of Lithuania was found to have re received millions of dollars worth of campaign financing from Russian organized crime, and which raising you know, serious concerns that his relationships had allowed Russian intelligence service access to Lithuania's highest office. So that's, and these practices also you know, pose a danger not only to, to fragile democracies that are attempting to define their own path, but also to the kind of more established democratic communities, EU and NATO members. Um, and the Azerbaijan uh, laundromat investigation which came out in the last couple of years, some of you may, may be more familiar with, um, has, has pointed to those risks as well. So I will, I will end now because I think I've used my 10 minutes. Um, I think in, just, just to conclude, I think 
if corruption poses grave challenges to security, that we, we would argue it does, um, I think for donors, that means that questions of governance and anti-corruption, uh, and particularly anti-corruption controls and institutions need to be at the center of, what, of, of their efforts in, in fragile or conflict-affected states, um, not being sort of seen as a phase two priority. For militaries who are carrying out operations or, or, or arms exporters, um, that means not contributing to insecurity by feeding corruption with, with, with their activities, with their, with their partners in those states. And then to address the sort of the risks of unaccountable and predatory armed forces um, that those create, the defense sector needs to stop hiding behind its exceptional status that's been used to sort of stymie reform. Um, we are arguing at, at Transparency International that there needs to be a move towards a, a new sort of global norm of responsible defense governance. Um, and that's something that we're in the, the early stages of. And I will leave it there. Excellent. Thanks, James, for being so analytic, but also pointing your finger at where change needs to happen. Johan, where has your research taken you, or what thoughts are provoked by this Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to say that, uh, as uh, Daniel mentioned uh, in the first, it's easy to forget that actually not that long ago, the problem with corruption, we didn't know much about it because of the lack of data, basically. But as we see now over the last 20 years, and especially uh, thanks to your pioneering work and also the work of Transparency International, other cross-country service, and also I would say as a more ethnographic researcher, also case, uh, case studies that has been showing how, how this works in different parts of the world. Uh, here I, I will just try to focus on three points uh, that I believe to some extent connects to Daniel's concluding thoughts there. Uh, and first, I will pick up shortly on the term of state capture and legalized corruption. And I will try to present my understanding of this in, in the context of the post-Soviet region, which is my primary geographical area of expertise. Uh, and the second point I will talk about concerns uh, anti-corruption uh, with a short focus on some success stories. And then maybe I have time for a few uh, remarks on the global dimension here, a little bit complementary to to James. Uh, but how I, this aspect of state capture, uh, how I see this evolution of the state business relations in, in, in the post-Soviet countries, and as Daniel mentioned here, the term state capture was developed by you to account for, for this, how powerful private interests um, basically had managed to hijack uh, uh, the critical functions of the state in several of these post-communist countries, so that administrative decision-making, um, court verdicts, or um, legislative procedures and other things primarily serve to, to serve special interests rather than the state interest. Uh, but over the last decade, I would say that the dominant form of, of capture, if you want, in these countries are no longer that of business interest trying to influence or provide illicit payments uh, to state officials from the outside. Um, I think this is no longer sufficient, especially not since the post-Soviet states after the first decade were of very severe decay uh, when state institutions collapsed. And, but since the, in the past 15 years, it has been rebuilt in that sense. The state has come back. 
monopoly on the use of violence and other things that could be used by leaders here to, to fight oligarchs, for instance, like Putin did in, in Russia. Uh, but instead, I think that what we see now is more of a kind of marketization of the state itself. Uh, so I would argue that state capture is essentially carried out from within the state uh, rather than initiated by powerful private firms or, or, um, or any other outside forces. Um, um, so, so it's a kind of inverse state capture, maybe you can, you can call it. Uh, so the key really is not to be the private actor that buys preferential treatment from the state, but rather to be the minister or the legislator to decide in the first place how to um, how rents are redistributed in, in, in the state. Um, so, so I would say that this connects a bit to, to the notion here, and the very interesting, of, of legalized corruption. Uh, but maybe one difference here compared to these more sophisticated aspects that you think about in, in Western societies is that the legalized corruption here in post-Soviet countries tends to be very raw or naked in a sense that, that it's very much that the minister and members of parliament they directly control this uh, rather than private interests working in collusion with, with the political parties, uh, etc. Um, yes, and the, the other aspect, and shortly on anti-corruption here, which is really the $10,000 question here maybe, um, and in fact, can we get rid of the problem? And you showed very interesting here with some graphs here. And I would say that the interesting thing is also that even if there is no uh, universal cure, uh, there are several countries that, that in modern times, as Daniel showed here, have managed to achieve a successful breakthrough in, in the fight against corruption, actually. And um, I think with these stories, these successful stories, they seem to have one thing in common, and that's mainly a political leadership here, willing to attack the problem or do something about it. It doesn't have to be, uh, as Daniel said, direct fight is probably not to be advised here, but more having a broader reforms that spill over here. Uh, but um, so, so I think this political leadership here really plays a, an, a role here, independent of um, ideological orientation or democratic credentials even. For example, we have the case of Botswana, where you had this state modernization um, under a very more type of enlightened despot, if you want to, um, who really managed to put that country on a different path than many of the neighbors. Uh, and on the other hand, you had countries like Estonia and a decade later, Georgia, after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, where you had this young group of reformers who were mainly inspired by this type of Anglo-Saxon economic thoughts of, you know, rapid market liberalization and administrative reforms. Um, but at the same time, you have cases, maybe you know this better, but Uruguay, for instance, where you had this more left-wing uh, left government who focused on raising taxes and building up uh, uh, welfare spending and also having a successful here. So I think the core here is that um, to achieve results here in these countries, where corruption is, is um, endemic or, or um, it, it requires uh, that really you, you, you um, it requires significant changes, but these changes can be either very rapid as they were in the case of maybe Estonia or, or, or Georgia, or they can take place over longer time periods. Maybe I would guess maybe Chile would, would 
fit there. Um, so, so, but there are multiple ways to, to reduce corruption here. So, so I think that countries like Botswana, Uruguay, Estonia, or Georgia, Singapore, they, they show a striking variety when it comes to form of government, ideology, geographical location, economic development and culture and so on. So, so this is, I think, also shows, as, as Daniel introduced in the beginning there, that this is not something culturally determined and that you really can su succeed if there is a political will here. Uh, if I have time, maybe for just a few th quick thoughts on global dimension here, maybe. Um, I would say that to connect to this that I talked about, traditionally we have often treated corruption as as a national and law enforcement issue that is especially problematic here in, in developing countries, um, rather seeing it from this perspective rather than as a global problem. But I think today it is increasingly clear, as James talked about here, that corruption has far-reaching consequences for the international system, including foreign policy and, and, and security policy. Where you see this, as Mats mentioned in the introduction here, this rules-based international order is challenged by alliances formed around this type of non-transparent quick deals. Or, or, and in some regions you also see that grievances here related to corruptions, corruption also spurred instability and, um, and um, you know, violent upheavals in, in a way. You see conflicts in Ukraine and, and also the Arab Spring um, started out in this way, in countries where the increasingly authoritarian leaderships had, had concentrated not only state power, but also control over the judiciary, the media, uh, businesses, but also non-governmental organizations. Um, and then also, uh, in, in the end there, you can say that even if this, um, yeah, um, you also have to, I think, to this add this aspect of the, we can say maybe the downside of globalization. Uh, when it comes to how unregulated international financial markets allow these elites from often different developing countries uh, to, to move their assets out of these countries and, and uh, um, to offshore companies in tax havens. And here, of course, the Panama leak revealed details that we previously only could, could guess maybe, but with regards to how different elites um, all around the world could uh, use the, the international financial system to, to hide money here. So I think that the conventional thinking of corruption as a um, problem only for developing countries also misses this critical aspect of how we need some, some kind of thinking regarding how we can regulate these financial markets uh, if we want to address these enormous uh, amounts of money that, that are channeled and laundered globally um, every year. Thanks, Johan. All three presentations just open up a whole area of questions one would like to, to address. Uh, but I think I turn to the audience, rather. To, to, uh, so if you're brief, maybe we can do a number of questions uh, anyway. So we start over here, uh, Ulva. The, the mic is coming your way, it's just beside you. 
Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Zero Akiol and I work at CEDA, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, as does my, my, I have a colleague here with me, Ulrika Lindberg. And at CEDA, I'm responsible for a portfolio of organizations that uh, focuses uh, to some extent, well, largely on, on corruption. And that portfolio includes actually Transparency International. So my question is, regarding the recommendations that you put forward, Daniel Kaufmann, uh, do they also, would you say, apply to uh, donors such as CEDA? Or do you have a different set of recommendations for a, for a donor of this kind? And basically, what would you say does an, does an, uh, does an agency such as CEDA, what, what, do we do, what do we need to do more of, less of, uh, keeping in mind that we are a funder? Thanks a lot. Let me capture a few more questions before I turn to you, Daniel. There was one here, please. Thank you. Uh, I'm Soren Berg. I'm retired and have a background mainly in publicly funded healthcare. And I assume that most of us, I guess all of us, uh, see this corruption that you describe as something very bad and that should be fought and, and we admire the work you've do, you do. Uh, but uh, what I've seen in my professional experience is very little of this very obvious corruption. But what I've seen is something that people can also describe as efficient networking. Uh, and uh, flexibility and being efficient is a gray zone between very formal way of, of, of working and this more close to corruption way of working. Do you think there's, there is a, such a gray zone and do you think it's important to discuss it? Thank you very much. A practical question and philosophical question. One more up here. Yep. <clears throat> My name is Kathleen McCaughey and I work with Amnesty in Sweden. I have a question for Mr. Kaufman. On one of your slides when you were talking about the, here I am, hi, uh, on freedom of press, of, of um, right after you were talking about that the amount of democracies had increased, which was good news, that freedom of press had not uh, increased in the world, there was also another factor in your slide that was women's rights, but it wasn't on the pie chart, but it was in the slide, and I was wondering if you could say a few words about that. Want to have a first go at these? Um, I'll do that. First, let me acknowledge the, 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 the brilliant comments by, by James and, and Johan. Um, and uh, just to, I mean, those were powerful remarks. And of course, for, for hours of further discussion, which will have to happen in another setting. But just to complement what you just said, James, what's What's the biggest security threat to the world today? Why are we, according to the nuclear clock, only two minutes to midnight, when 10, 15 years ago, we got to 15 minutes, we were much further. You know about the nuclear clock. Why is that? North Korea crisis, right? What's one of the key antecedents to the North Korean crisis? That's not sufficiently known. It's Mr. Khan from Pakistan and how he was bribed and provider of the nuclear secrets and all what happened around that uh, to, to North Korea, that whole story. So I hope also in your work that those type of incredibly chilling stories of corruption in, in intelligence services, corruption and implications for our world, world sec security. Um, and thank you very much also, Johan. There's so much to discuss further. I just want to make 
one point that we should, I'd like to follow up with, with you in another fora. I'd like to, to advance the notion that these, we should circumscribe this whole work and focus on the notion of state capture, capture of the state, to, to democracies, even fragile democracies, uh, which, in, as you say, it has been morphing in some cases, <clears throat> rather than the business outside basically capturing those in the state inside. They place people inside. The most chilling story in recent times is the new tax reform, that how it was approved and, it was, and what it was done and what it contains in the United States. It's such an example of inside capture where it's not that that was <clears throat> just Mr. Trump himself, but all the associates around it and the capture of that. It's just, and that should be distinguished from those non-democratic countries where I would not characterize state capture, but as kleptocratic regimes. And that has a different implication we should discuss. Because otherwise everything can be, once everything applies within a notion, and it doesn't pass the verbarian test of what is not state capture. Um, very quickly, uh, of course, one has to discuss these, to, talking about the gray areas you just, uh, you just mentioned. We did research on that because this, that was such a popular notion, and we even call it, try to test, is, is corruption and this bribery that does take place among firms to expedite things, other informality. Is it the grease or the sand that drives uh, commerce, and we found that on balance it's a sand, and it's a, it's a major tax uh, on on the private private sector. Um, contrary to popular belief, and there's been great anthropological research in Africa, uh, even in the rural areas, not high education, everybody knows the difference of what's a gift and what's corrupt and so on. So people know, and of course, de depending on the context, that gray area shifts a bit, but there is that an understanding. Um, women, gender, it's absolutely crucial. Sorry for the lack of time. We have quite, quite a bit of work. The extent of women's rights, women's participation in a so society is associated with less corruption. So that's, that's an important link, and of course, with many other other such good issues. And that links to, to the question from, from you in, in SIDA. Maybe we can follow up later. That's for a longer discussion. But nowadays, particularly with what is happening in Europe, where so many factions of anti-immigration, not just in Europe, obviously in the United States, and so on, with that, it's incredibly important not to fall into the short-sighted approach which some on that side of anti-immigration also believe that why are we helping these developing countries cannot they even help help themselves investment in these type of issues on improvement on governance on transparency on anti-corruption and particularly in many of these resource-rich countries which are so vulnerable they're fragile some are failing that's an investment in stemming that enormous flow of immigrants to Europe. So even from a, even, even if one is not totally focused that we need to help our fellows in developing countries, but for our own national objectives, I believe that organizations like CEDA, this is such an important, crucial moment 
precisely because of the politics, the shift in politics in Europe and also elsewhere regarding the more nationalistic tendencies and so on. And that narrative has to be out together with the evidence that if one doesn't invest in stemming the tide on anti-governance and more corruption and turning it around, the, the problem is only going to get worse. It's too late by the time that those refugees or those desperate people have arrived already into, into the continent. One has to ask the most fundamental question, how do we help at the source to begin stemming that tide? The same applies with illicit financial flows. It's really important to, to take more actions now on that, but it's also a bit too late. How do we work on avoiding that that major corrupt act and stealing doesn't happen in the first place. So we need to look at the whole chain and, uh, and tackle it much earlier. There's much more to that, but, but in essence, this Nine is more important than it's never going to be enough for this. Nevertheless, I've seen two hands that I'd like to give, and then each one of you gets the last word. There you go. Yes, Alf Persson, Transparency International, Sweden. One quick question. Obviously, state capture is a big issue. So how do you measure state capture, or rather, degree of state capture? There was one up here, but maybe I missed it. Okay, well then we go, all right. Thank you, my name is Osa Boshem. I'm from an organization called Raw Talks. Um, I'm interested in what makes a company reject or embrace corruption <laughs> or trans the transparency, uh, transparency agenda. And Daniel, if you want an example, you can go with Exxon versus Total. Is it the environment they operate in? Is it internal leadership? Is it internal culture? Thanks a lot. Now, let's go in reverse order. And I'd just like to add one little element. And this afternoon has been a lot about facts, fighting alternative facts, giving evidence, fighting uh, misleading narratives. Where would you guys like to shed more light in the next generation in order to succeed better? if you have an, a thought on that. Otherwise, just take the questions or whatever you'd like. Johan, would you go first? I think maybe the question on state capture is best that Daniel addresses. Um, but uh, with, with one thing I may say about this aspect of, of the culture or, or uh, what is it, leadership when companies uh, are involved, I think it's hard to say. But one thing that has struck me when I look at these post-Soviet countries is often that you, you're very aware that when, when you talk to people about this, the phenomenon, that they, they know very well that they're paying bribes and, and do, doing this aspect. But so even if they are against this, uh, you know, on principle, maybe they would prefer not to do it. They succumb to the, to the system, to the environment around them, because that's what's needed to, to get your children to school and have a good health care and these aspects. So I think maybe so this influence of the environment in that sense to, to be able to operate and function. Um, well, I, I think the thing that, to, in answer to your question, Matt, I think I would, I would go to the grey zone um, that we were discussing. I think if there's an area I think needs more light shed on it, I'm, I'm sort of going to stick to my sort of defence territory here. I think it's the, 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 the influence of the defence sector on Western foreign policies. I think that's a really interesting subject. I think it's one that um, perhaps people have certain assumptions about it, but it's, it's not well measured and, and well understood. And I, I'm referring particularly to the fact that 
you know, we see, we see repeated examples of states that are bound into international regimes like the Arms Trade Treaty and the European Common Position um, that require them to consider international stability um, or and human rights and other concerns as part of their, their export decisions. And yet what they, what they appear to do is prioritize particular economic interests, particular financial interests within their, within their countries um, at, the, at the expense of those bigger objectives. So there's a sort of contradiction, but it, it is, it is quite, they're quite consistently fall in line um, with what the industry wants. And I think that's maybe a good example of where you see a gray zone. You know, that may, that may not be a case of um, raw corruption, but it's, a, it's, it's governmental systems which are way over influenced by particular lobby groups that, are, that, are, that have, you know, and in a way you could say sort of penetrated the policymaking decision. And obviously the revolving door is, is, is a key part of that. So I think that's something that I would like to kind of, the, the community to be increasingly focused on. Fantastic, thanks James. Danny. Mike. Sorry. Yeah, and, and Johan passed to me the question on caption, <laughs> on, on measurement. But first, let me address as a question. Great, great question. I'll try to be uh, very brief. I commend your work um, on, on this. It's absolutely crucial and fascinating what's happening now with in the, in the corporate sector, including with the very big multinationals. There is absolutely no point, just like we showed about countries, of generalizing and making them all the devil or uh, all doing. There's such a, a, a div divide. And you have the big oil companies. Let's talk about extractive for one second. The big oil in the US, led by Chevron and, and Exxon, that basically are trying to protect opacity at, at all levels and are against all this agenda that we are talking about. about. And that's related to the, the broader issue of capture. They have been part of it that we are discussing. So the whole legal environment in the US, which should have mandated already years ago that they have to disclose and be transparent, is still being held without implementation because of the Republican Congress and the White House. Europe has leaped frog forward in that area and according to EU directives and already being implemented UK directives and the rest of the EU it's a very different picture there's a legal framework it's not being challenged and the companies as a result they follow the law at the end of the day the multinationals say this is a law but they're also seeing that it's not so costly and it is in their interest so total is from, from France is now a leader, and they're going ahead, even voluntarily disclosing all their contracts, which the US companies are fighting to tooth and nail. So part is a legal environment, part is leadership. Who is a leader at what point in this organization? Part is internal culture. The all oil men from Houston are different. That's, I mean, in, in Europe, one has to understand. Part is also the cultural difference between the oil companies and the mining companies that are moving ahead. So it's it's many different factors, it's a crime. but incentives and the legal framework matters enormously. Let me finish with a question on, on, a, on data measurement. I cannot give a full answer. These are very hard things, but it can be done. And I showed some, it was an initial effort. I mean, it was an effort and we can do more. But in essence, one can measure the extent, uh, the extent to which <coughs> party financing campaign financing is or is not transparent, is or is not 
uh, able to influence policies and regulations and so on. How laws, regulations are adopted, again, the tax reform of the United States, how it was adopted and by this clique, without any consultation, without any transparency, overnight, and just by one faction versus the other. If we had to measure it, and we started putting a serious index of different parts of the world in a scale of zero to 100, probably would be two or five out of 100, while in other countries it's being done very uh, differently. Um, and, and, and similarly, and also in terms of um, purchasing some <laughs> Uh, the extent to which lobbies and others basically purchase legislation for the private gain. So all that is what we try to start measuring with what I showed. One can go to the next level. I want to finish because going full circle by thanking you, Matt, and all that, because we go back to data and we go back 20 years. When I started, we started these governance indicators. Of course, other than... Jim Wolfenson and a few like Matt, there was no support from, from the countries aboard. It was very suspicious that we were getting involved into, into, into politics. Um, in the board, in the countries, the, the Scandinavian countries, Sweden and Norway in particular, and the Netherlands were the ones that came to us. We will support this and also including with funding and so on. So it's a reminder that we should not rely on just the superpowers of taking leadership on, on these issues, and particularly when in today, because there's such a gap, a vacuum that is left by the United States. There are enlightened countries like yours and agencies like CEDA that has been involved that can play an, a major leadership role now where that vacuum is. So thank you for already <laughs> having from the very start supported this. Every time we make progress against corruption, it is thanks to progress within institutions. And here we have representatives, leadership, true leadership in academia, civil society, international cooperation that have shown the best of it. Fantastic to have had you here. I'm very proud to have hosted you here at the Institute together with Transparency International. Let's give them a big hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>